0: The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Oscar voting is underway, so we'd like to call your attention to some of our interviews with Academy Award-nominated filmmakers. For example, check out our conversation with Anne Alvigay and Deborah McClutchy about their film, The Martha Mitchell Effect. Martha Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General and Nixon campaign chief John Mitchell, was dismissed at the time of Watergate as being crazy or even a drunk. She was, in fact, the victim of a well-planned gaslighting campaign hatched by Nixon, his top aides, and even her husband. Studying its revelations and highly immersive in its cinematic approach, this powerful film will grant you a new perspective on those dark days of American history. Also, you might want to listen to our conversation with Cardi Gonzalez and Doug Blush about their film, The Elephant Whisperers. This film tracks the relationship between an orphaned Indian elephant, Raghu, and his two caretakers, Bowman and Belly, It demonstrates not only the intelligence, including emotional intelligence, of this giant mammal, but shows the ways that as a virtual family unit, these three support and even heal one another. This is a beautifully shot and composed film that subtly speaks to deeper concerns of how we will get along with the other creatures of this world as it inexorably changes. You can watch the Martha Mitchell effect and the Elephant Whisperers, both now on Netflix.
1: Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I have the honor of talking to Variety's Senior Awards Editor, Clayton Davis, about this year's Oscar race for Best Documentary Feature and Short. This is the second year in a row that I've had the opportunity to talk to Clayton, and just like last year, I learned a whole lot at the hands of somebody who lives and breathes the Oscar race for weeks and weeks during the year. Thankfully, after all that time and all that money spent on those campaigns, the voting has begun. It opened on March 2nd, and it will close on March 7th. And the big show, this year's Oscars, is happening on March 12th. So last year, when I talked to Clayton, there was more or less a clear favorite, Summer of Soul, which pretty much had been in the Oscar lead, Wire to Wire. There was also Flea, which was nominated in several categories. This year, the race seems more wide open with several films having a clear shot to take home the Oscar. But it's not just about features, and it's always great to have a discussion about shorts and bring them front and center. So this year, we began by talking about this year's Oscar-nominated shorts before diving into the feature category. And along the way, there's a healthy dose of discussion about the Academy's documentary branch and just trying to game what it's like that goes on inside the mind of the Academy's voters. So we're almost there. We're almost at the finish line. Everyone's exhausted. But I do want to just take a moment to say that even though there's only going to be one winner of this year's Oscar, there were dozens and dozens of tremendous, amazing documentaries this year, many of which didn't make the shortlist or didn't even qualify. So, of course, it's not all about the Oscars. That being said, it was a lot of fun to talk to Clayton, and I hope you enjoyed listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking to him. As usual, if you like this conversation, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and do tell a friend. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. And now my conversation with Variety's Senior Awards Editor, Clayton Davis. Clayton Davis, welcome back to Top Docs. Thanks for having me. You bet. I really enjoyed our conversation last year, going through the documentary Oscar nominees, and I'm equally excited this year.
2: Yeah, it's been another stellar year for Doc. I mean, we're in the Doc Golden Age right now. I've been saying that for quite some time. We had the Golden Age of television, and we're in the Golden Age of Docs. So it's a lot of good stuff out there.
1: Absolutely. And we will be focusing mostly on the documentary features, the five nominees. But To mix it up this year, we are going to start with a short discussion about the five Doc Short nominees. Let's take these, perhaps in alphabetical order, starting with The Elephant Whisperers. The Elephant
2: Whisperers from filmmakers Kartiki Gonzalez and Gunit Monga is a Netflix movie. Kartiki, as a matter of fact, recently, just a random memory at the Oscar nominee luncheon, was able to capture the moment of Steven Spielberg telling Tom Cruise that he, like, saved cinema. A doc person would catch that big moment just in a large room where there's millions of journalists, but a doc person actually catches that. The Elephant Whispers uh, from Netflix, it follows an indigenous couple as they fall in love with Ragu, an orphaned elephant, given into their care and tirelessly work to ensure his survival. Beautiful documentary short, very moving if you're an animal lover, it can tug right at the heartstrings. Also think if you're an animal lover and don't like seeing animals mistreated or know of how they are treated in this world, then it also might be a difficult watch for you, mate, but it's a very moving film. Maybe quite a little Dark Horse in the race. However, Netflix has two films in the category this year, so it's always one that seems to be a little
1: ahead of the other. Well, why don't we go to the second one that is on Netflix, the Martha Mitchell effect.
2: Yeah, Martha Mitchell effect from filmmakers Anne Alverge and Beth Levison. I apologize if I'm butchering anyone's name here. I do it with all love and try to get this right. But that tells the story of the cabinet wife who spoke out during Watergate and the Nixon administration's campaign to gaslight her into silence. I mean, listen, talk about timely documentaries. There you go. And I think The film is right now far and away the front runner in the race. And I think it could really do some damage. One thing that's perhaps against it, and I call this the Coda effect from last year, had a very rough four years (laughs) slash six slash decade. (laughs) So I always say that sometimes the Academy members are looking for a good time and they're not looking to be bummed out. And that will explain 2020. When my octopus teacher won. It was by far the happiest film in that lineup.
1: I was thinking about my octopus teacher in relation to this year's Elephant Whispers. Do you think that the animal factor could play into it?
2: Yeah, and I think but I think what Octopus Teacher had the Elephant Whispers doesn't have as a parent is Octopus Teacher on top of being happy was also gorgeous. The filming of it is just like incredible, you know, capturing world underwater. Elephant Whisperers doesn't have that screensaver-like picturesque qualities that could uh, make it to your desktop. But I mean, they're both really strong films, and I think they're arguably leading the pack in the category.
1: Do you think the the Martha Mitchell effect being a historical doc is a positive or a negative or a factor at all in its chances?
2: It really depends on what mood the Academy's in right now. When you're looking at presidential election years, we had my octopus teacher at the end of 2020 going into 2021. There was a lot of things going on. It was rough to just dissect a lot of that. So I think the Academy actively looked elsewhere and I always feel the Academy is a good reflection of what's happening in our current state and humanity or the country. I don't know if I've gotten the clear sense of what mood we're in. I know Academy they are looking for entertainment, but when it comes to docs, it's always a different animal
1: to break down. Let's go to Hall Out, which is one of two films streaming on the New Yorker website.
2: Yeah, Hall Out from filmmakers Genia Arbugeva and Maxim Arbugev follows a man waiting in his hut in the desolate expanse of the Russian Arctic. He is holding out in order to observe a natural event that occurs here every year, but ocean warming has taken its toll. So looking at, you know, climate change, another very timely effect. I would say timely if you are on the right side of that discussion and believe that it's real. Then yes, this sits straight at what's happening right now in our global world. However, I think when it comes to science documentaries, and this leans on the science aspect of it. Those are tough sells to the Academy at large, just because they typically, if it feels too procedural or it feels preachy, then that could have an effect. And I will say, just based on my conversations with some Doc Branch members that voted, people were very surprised about Hall Out making the final cut, especially considering that films like Holding Moses... Uh, Nuisance Bear and Third
1: at the Garden that they did not
2: make it and we were all expecting to see those films make the lineup.
1: And now is a good opportunity to give our annual explanation about who votes for what. So can you explain to us who voted on getting films on the short list which has 15 docs on it? Who voted to get those 15 down to the five nominees? And who will vote on the winner? The first thing is Every branch votes in their respective areas. There's 18 branches
2: of the Academy. So there's a producer's branch, acting branch, et cetera, et cetera. Documentary branch, which is by far the, I don't know if this is a word, the clubbiest of all of them, they vote on the shortlist. In the branch, there's about 650 some odd members. Only documentarians that are in the documentary branch vote on the shortlist. That gets you down to 15 Then everyone votes again. That gets you down to five. When it comes to winners, the entire Academy membership, which is right now eligible voters are a little over 9,600. They can vote for winners. And I'm sure we're going to get to this at some point. So I don't want to like predate it as much, but I will say, as saying again, we are in the golden age of documentaries. There are so many docs to watch. And I always say inarguably, documentarians are the hardest working filmmakers because they work on things for years and decades and they're on the ground the amount that's out there they're not getting to everything they need to adopt what the animated feature branch did was allow members to opt in to say like i want to watch the movies and vote in the category i think that will really give Every movie a fighting chance is right now. It's about what's the loudest or who the friend that they know is that directed it.
1: All right. So hopefully the Academy is listening. I'm sure they are. And uh, (laughs) maybe they will take that note into consideration for next year. I think it's a very interesting idea and it certainly would involve more people in the process, which to me sounds like a good thing.
2: Also just uh, uh, another flip side of that, Benefit is if you allow more people to opt in, the Academy expanded their best picture lineup to 10 nominees after 2009 with the hopes of one day getting a documentary in the best picture lineup. We're never going to get that if it's just documentarians that are allowed to vote in the category. Because right now, and it shouldn't be like this, I'm not saying it's right, but you have to really twist arms to get people to watch documentaries. If there's no incentive for a cinematographer, to watch it just for the sake of cinematography, that's harder to get them to do. But if there's, maybe I could consider it for picture as well, it allows more voices at the table and maybe we can get a
1: documentary in the lineup one day soon. Let's hope so. So let's go back to our list of shorts. And since it's also with The New Yorker, let's talk about Stranger at the Gate.
2: Yeah, Stranger at the Gate from uh, filmmakers Joshua Septel and Connell Jones. A U.S. Marine plots a terrorist attack on a small town American mosque. His plan takes an unexpected turn when he comes face-to-face with the people he sets out to kill. Stranger at the Gate is, again, one of those surprises that came into the lineup. And not a lot of people were expecting it. And again, war films are tough at the moment in terms of just where we are, what's going on in Ukraine. It becomes a very difficult thing for people to watch, especially when it's a documentary and it's real. Because, I mean, listen, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, the German submission for international feature that got nine nominations. And that really happened, but it's a fictionalized version, and people don't have to deal with the effects that this is happening right now. Things that are in your face of the moment tend to be more difficult to sell to the academy at large, because you have to appeal to 9,600 people now, not just the 650 doc members.
1: So our fifth and final film is How Do You Measure a Year? And it's directed by Jay Rosenblatt. And just a note that we had Jay on the podcast last year with his short doc, When We Were Bullies, which was nominated. Mm -hmm. So two nominations in a row for Jay. And I believe last year's winner, Brent Proudfoot had two nominations in a row himself. So is that good luck charm for Jay?
2: So yes. And how do you measure a year? The synopsis for people who aren't familiar from the time she was two years old and until she turned 18, they had a ritual dad asked and filmed Ella and Ella answered, what do you dream about? And I would say Jay Rosenblatt in general really speaks to the grassroots aspect of film that we like to see happen in the Academy because he distributes the movies himself. He's a director and a producer. This is really like everything from his heart. This could be a sneaky dark horse here to come up the middle. Because again, feel good if you're a parent. And I hate always using that crutch, like if you're a parent, it's really gonna hit you. You know what? But my God, if you're a parent, get ready to like just it, It's incredible. I think it's gonna do really well with people. I, I always have this saying if it loses, it tells me that not enough people watched it. I think if the Academy does it right and you watch all five, I really think this is down to Martha Mitchell and how do you measure a year? And I feel like how do you measure a year would really be the one that would hit the right pocket of voters.
1: Interesting. And I love that turn of phrase, if it loses, not enough people watched it. And we will return to that when we talk about the features. So let me ask you to just recap from longest of the long shots to your favorite to win the Oscar for best documentary short.
2: Yeah. I think going from five to one, and again, this is right now time recording. It's always uh, an evolving race. You get to have conversations with the Academy, but I would probably go uh, stranger at the gate at five right now, then move up to hole out at four. Think elephant whispers is three. How do you measure a year at two? And then the Martha Mitchell effect, I think, is the one to beat at the moment. And that's where I am today. Final predictions are always, uh, it stresses me out when when voting hasn't started yet. But yeah, that's where I see things at the moment.
1: Gotcha. And yes, for clarification, we are talking on February 17th. Mm -hmm. So still a few weeks out here and many things can change. Yeah, don't scream at me later.
2: (laughs) But my personal favorite, I just this lineup, it probably is Martha Mitchell effect with a very close runner up of how do you measure a year? I do my own personal list on Variety every year of if I had a ballot, what would it look like? And my favorite that I wanted to win was the best chef in the world, which was from Ben Proudfoot. And he didn't get nominated this year, which is crazy because I actually love, 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 love it more than what he won for last year. and I thought what he won for last year was great. Uh, I was a big fan of that. I was also a big fan of 3 at the Garden, man. Like, that, that, that stung a lot.
1: It's always a tough moment when you don't see the films you love on that final list of five, for sure. All right, let's jump into the main event and talk about the five nominees for Best Documentary Feature.
2: Yeah, I would not be doing my job as a complaining journalist if I didn't complain that this is a good lineup. But oh my God, was it a great year for Docs once again. And there are some movies that didn't make it that broke my heart in pieces. And there are even some movies that didn't even make the shortlist that broke my heart even more. So Justice for Goodnight, Oppie, Until the Day I Die (laughs) and Love, Retrograde, Bad Acts, Hallelujah, the Leonard Cohen doc, total bangers. So just got to do that. Now I'm done with the
1: complaints. Now we look at the lineup. Of those, or, or even some of the ones you didn't mention that didn't make the top five, were there any that you thought were going to make it and didn't end up on there?
2: One that surprised me that I thought was going to make it and didn't was Descendant, the Netflix doc by Margaret Brown. It felt safe for a good long while, so I think that was probably the biggest quote-unquote surprise.
1: Yeah, that, that was a surprise. What about Moon Age Daydream, which was the biggest grossing doc of the year by far by Brett Morgan. And it did make the BAFTA list, but it did not make the Oscar nominee list. I need to be clear that this is not my personal feelings. I
2: love Brett Morgan, like really love the man. The doc branch has always done Brett Morgan dirty. It's just, it's like their thing to do him dirty. I never thought that Moon Age was going to get, I'm shocked that he even made the short list, I'll be honest because they just don't go for him, typically. BAFTA, I was really bummed because I felt like it was giving some real hardcore false hope to all of us. Oh my God, maybe they will do it. Maybe Brett will get something finally. And no, so I wasn't surprised in the slightest. I was the same way I was surprised that Matthew Heinemann's Retrograde didn't make it. My favorite doc of the year, personal favorite doc of the year, was in my top 10 films of the year. I think Matthew should have even gotten a nomination for directing, on that film and Matthew ever since his first nom they've just not come back to him in a way that he deserves because City of Ghosts is incredible and Retrograde was a real return to form for him I thought it was spectacular and very emotional and the first
1: wave last
2: year I thought was quite strong the first wave I thought first wave was I would have nominated him last year too he should be on his like fifth or sixth nomination by now So, yeah, again, why another reason, straight in our face, why the Academy needs to allow people to opt into the category, because I think you will not have these bangers
1: miss out. What we're going to do this time is we are going to go from the dark horses to the favorites. So let's start with one of your dark horses to win. Dark horses to win. So I'm going to start with a house made
2: of splinters. Naturally, the one that people have heard the least about when it comes to the masses is going to have the hardest time. It comes from Director Simon Luring-Wilmont and then Producer Monica Hellstrom. Children and staff in a special kind of home, an institution for children who have been removed from their homes while awaiting court custody decisions, staff do their best to make the time children have there safe and supportive. Different from the how do you measure a year problem or pro is, you know, if you're a parent, then that's going to hit you in the heart. Children without a home, if you're a parent, really bums you out. and It's hard to kind of navigate through that. I don't think a lot of Academy members have heard of the film as much. It's surprised on the short list, which I predicted it to make the short list because I started hearing like pockets of support. You start hearing that along the way. And then it got as far as it did, and now it's nominated. Just for comparison, it's being distributed by Giant Pictures, which is a smaller distributor that now has to battle with the Nat Geos, Warner Brothers, HBOs, Neons, and that's hard to do because they have unlimited buckets of money sometimes, and newer kids on the block struggle with that.
1: So I think it is really interesting that this film made the list of the five final nominees. How do you think it got on that list? What does that tell us that it got on? I'm not saying it's not a really strong film. I'm just talking about the obvious handicaps against it that you mentioned. The good thing is that name recognition goes a long way. And Monica
2: Hellstrom, who's the producer, was just nominated last year for Flea. And Flea made history, an animated feature, documentary, and international. So I would say uh, residual leftover goodwill can go a long way. So if they've already went for you once, why wouldn't they do it again?
1: And also, doesn't this speak to the power of the international voters in the doc branch? Because yeah. if you look at the other nominees, with the exception of All That Breeze, which we'll talk about, we're talking about several American films.
2: Yeah, the international pocket of the Academy has been, they've been the tilter, uh, that's even a the term, they can really move the race in a particular way, and they've had an influence both in documentary nominees, but also overall winners. It's the international pocket that gets Anthony Hopkins over the finish line over Chadwick Boseman. It's the international pocket that is able to get All Quiet on the Western Front and Triangle Sadness nominated for Best Picture this year. When the Academy started adding members, the big story obviously was like, oh, they're adding a lot of diverse, younger members, which is true. But the largest increase of all membership was the doc branch internationally. They had the largest increase of members. So the last few years, we have seen that that showing in there. So what tends to happen is when I'm predicting, when I'm looking at films that are in the running, are there films that appeal to both that the American group can get on board with? And the international, because then that is the broad support that you look for. Because a lot of the 9,600, when they vote, a lot of them are going to abstain from documentary feature. They're not going to give it time because just people don't don't watch everything. It's a terrible sin that I want them to (laughs) get in trouble for. But yeah, they don't watch everything. So all the branch members are going to vote. And then you start thinking about, all right, what appeals more broadly? And then that's how you factor in your decision.
1: Also, you know... A house made of splinters is said is in Ukraine, and obviously Ukraine is on everybody's mind. And as we all know, doc filmmakers have a social conscience, and yeah. I'm just thinking that certainly played a factor here.
2: Oh, absolutely. And listen, sometimes things are a little too close to home also. Taking place in Ukraine, again, a reminder. And the CODA effect, again, when I explain the CODA effect to people, I say CODA won Best Picture last year. By accident. And I would say by accident because Ukraine got bombed three days before it won the SAG award for SAG ensemble. And then when that group, that cast stood on stage, we all did. I looked at them, the academy, everyone looked at them and said, Oh, I can be happy about something. Like, cause I'm really bummed out right now. And they ran with that. And then that's exactly what happened. That's how Koda wins Best Picture. But now this could be like, oh, this is still going on and this is terrible. And again, documentaries is real that can really keep voters at a distance.
1: All right. So we're going to move on to our next film. But before we do that, just do you feel like this year is kind of a wide open race? Or how are you handicapping the the overall race between these five films?
2: So it's strange. I do think it's wide open. I do think any of them can win in theory which tends to happen every year, if you go by statistics and just like standard playbooks of Oscar predicting, like you just see who's won what up until now, it could be just a very easy thing to call. And that would be All the Beauty in the Bloodshed, because it's won the major prizes that typically lead up to winning the Oscar. But it's never that simple. I do think it's wide open. And again, that international pocket, what are they going to go with? Or what they split votes with, because that actually, it's a good segue into what I feel is next up on the list. And that's Navalny from director Daniel Rohr. It's CNN slash Warner Brothers production follows the man who survived an assassination attempt being poisoned by Vladimir Putin, allegedly. I guess allegedly we're just going to contain that. And Navalny got the BAFTA nomination, which I predicted it would. I thought that that was really going to hit. So differing from House Made of Splinters, It's Ukraine reminder, but it's a Ukraine reminder of the villain in the story, not the atrocities that are going on. Navalny could feel like the middle finger, the redemption that you can give to Putin directly by giving Navalny the the Oscar. However, talk about splitting votes, House made of splinters to Navalny, I think the same demographic, the same pocket of, of the Academy. So... We may have a race on our hands (laughs) like any
1: other time in history. Do you think the fact that the film is kind of a thriller, so it's very fast paced, it's engaging, it has the feel of a Hollywood film, but it's a documentary and it has this reveal that happens toward the end about who may be behind all this? do those factors play into how the average Academy viewer may look at this and maybe cast their votes?
2: Yes. Being entertained is an Academy member's dream. They want to be entertained by every single nominee that's available. Interesting pair with this movie. And that's what I tend to do. I look at what's in the running and then I actually sometimes will pair something up. So what does a Navalny voter also vote for on their ballots? And I believe, people who are voting for Top Gun Maverick are voting for Navalny. I think they speak to one another. So Fascinating. I would argue, and I'm one that believes that Top Gun is in the running to win Best Picture. I really honestly believe that it could get close. If that's as close as we think it is, then I would probably end up predicting Navalny in the end. But if it's something like Everything Everywhere All at Once, there are maybe other factors that speak to that i'm thinking that could be all the beauty in the bloodshed or fire of love that speak to everything everywhere voter banshees actually i think gets paired weirdly with all that breathes again this is all speculation i could be completely wrong about this but i look at that kind of demographic like fableman's is your quintessential standard academy member so that's probably all the beauty in the bloodshed also so you see what appeals more to more groups and then that's how you try to Come up with your winner
1: and that's why we have you on the pod <laughs> because you do that kind of deep dive that i would never think about so let's go to the next film what do you have up next and again for folks making our way up to the favorite to win the oscars yeah so what's next on your list
2: the next on my list right now is fire of love from director sarah dosa intrepid scientist and lovers katia maurice died in a volcanic explosion doing the very thing that brought them together unraveling the mysteries of volcanoes by capturing the most explosive imagery ever recorded if you're looking for my octopus teacher this is probably the closest thing you have to one this year feel good even though it's wrapped in tragedy but speaks to passion and we all have our own passions in our life and we don't always share those with our spouses or loved ones it's a rarity to see two people in love that love the exact same thing in the same way and the same like passion and die doing it i think filmmakers especially directors would love to have their spouse live and breathe for direction and film the way they do And sometimes they're just someone that takes the background but fire of love i think is the safest movie to appeal broadly to the academy
1: it's also Pretty much exclusively an archival film. There's, I think, some animation or motion graphics, but No Talking Heads. Is that pro, con its chances?
2: It's con to get into the lineup, and it already made the lineup. There's three things I always say that the Doc Branch hates. They hate archival footage. They hate recreations. So that's why The Rescue. And they also don't like music documentaries. Hello, Moon Age Daydream, and Why You're Not There sometimes there's an abundance of some of them that still like you can't snub all of them i mean you guess you could but yeah like good night Oppie, recreation recreating mars didn't go over well with them they didn't like it summer of soul that was its biggest hump last year i was like As long, if it can get into the five then it can win and that's why they got into the five and then it won so fireblood has made it this far now it quietly could be the one in the end, standing on this stage. Sarah Dosa, by the way, a big filmmaker, very popular in the San Francisco area where a large pocket pub documentary members live. Not every of the 9,600 are going to vote on the category. She may get a good pocket of support from the American side. Not sure how much of this is going to appeal internationally.
1: So you mentioned Sarah, and this takes me to this question of How effective are the filmmakers at doing their own campaigning? Because they're all running around doing a million Q&As and various events. And I think Sarah has really stepped up to the plate and done an amazing job of campaigning. She's incredibly bright and she manages to make the interview sound fresh, even if she's answered the question a million times. Yeah. So how important is the filmmaker in helping drive votes for their film or drive at least people to watch the film?
2: I'd argue is probably the most important factor. I'd say it's more important than the movie itself, which it shouldn't really be that way. But the way the doc branch is structured right now and the way they vote and what we've seen them do over the past few years, I think it's just what they tend to do. The filmmaker selling it, being liked, being respected within the branch. Sometimes they also get, they get done with you. Usually they feel like they've done you a little too much and then they never invite you back or sometimes you're just the one to beat for so long. And then they live to snub the front runner. I would say they live for it. It's like their favorite thing to do. Apollo 11, three identical strangers. Won't you be my neighbor? Jane, all Miss Oscar nominations. And it was, they were destined to win.
1: One other thing to bring up now that I think is an issue to relate to all the films is the effectiveness of the campaigns by the distributors. So How would you rate the job that, in this case, Nat Geo and Disney have done with Fire of Love? And how about some of the other campaigns? I would say Nat
2: Geo, Navalny, all of them except for Giant Pictures. Because again, Giant Pictures is one of the new kids on board with the movie. But in this post-Oscar nominations, Neon and Nat Geo have been loud about with their slate. And Fire of Love is co-distributed by Nat Geo and Neon. So they're splitting that up. But I've seen Fire of Love ads everywhere. I've seen FYC things everywhere. Like they are pushing. They want it. So yeah, it's very effective. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, there are some movies that are driven by critics to get them as far as they get. And then they turn on the campaign train
1: in that final stretch. Again, interesting insights. I wouldn't have thought of different kinds of campaigns to get to one level and then moving in a different direction to get all the way across the threshold.
2: I mean, all the Beauty and the Bloodshed, like, it all started at Venice. Venice kicked it off. <laughs> Once it won the Golden line at Venice, it was like, okay, they didn't need to push as hard. Even though I do think all the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is going to bring us, let me just, it's a natural progression. Let's just get into it now. All Here the Beauty and the Bloodshed. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed from Laura Potris, distributed by Neon, follows the life of artist Nan Golden, who is one of the producers on it, is now Oscar-nominated, and also follows the downfall of the Sackler family, the pharmaceutical dynasty, who is greatly responsible for the opioid epidemic and its rising death toll. We always, as I say we, pundits, people like myself that follow the Oscars, we're always separating what we want to win, what will win, right? When I saw All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, and I love Laura, I love Citizen Four. I think she is a fabulous filmmaker. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed did not hit with me the way it did with the critics and obviously where it's been doing on the circuit. It feels like two separate movies to me. With that said, it is a divisive movie and not the way that I see it as like, I'm, I'm like, oh, this is two separate movies. I think this, is, this doesn't really gel together. Nan Golden Seems to be a lot more spicy, but a lot more, she is as beloved. It's not a universal, like, we love Nan Golden. There are questionable things that people bring up. I see some things on social media. And interestingly, we haven't seen much of her on the circuit. I think that's intentional because I think you leave yourself open to maybe some controversial moments or you provide a talking point to someone else. Listen, I thought All the Beauty and the bloodshed up was going to be the Big Miss. I thought that was your Jane, Three Identical Strangers, Won't Be My Neighbor snub. But now that it's here, sometimes the Oscars will fall in line. With that said, though, Nan Golden, what Americans may interpret as controversial, I think Europeans are going to be like, this is part of the course. I think that movie gets a large contingent of the international vote. It's funny because she's American, so you think that to appeal American, but I think she's going to appeal more internationally. And I think that's what's going to end up bringing it through. But the part about the Sackler family that really speaks to Americans. So I guess it really depends on what part of the movie really moves you. What drives the story? Is it the Dan Golden origin story or is it the pharmaceutical pieces? Again, two separate movies.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, Nan Golden is an internationally renowned artist who's had shows across the globe. So that could well be a factor here. Also, I think the fact she was successful with her activism against the Sacklers and the museums that were continuing to have the Sackler name on their museum wings and so on, to me, could be a factor also, which is she won, she triumphed. And with Navalny, for instance, you know, he's in jail. So it's a very sad situation we're in with him being in jail and it's unresolved. All That breathes, I think, which we're going to talk about in just a second. All That breathes does have a kind of a bit of a triumphant ending in some ways. Different kind of film, different kind of ending. I wouldn't be reductive and call it a happy ending, but endings that leave you Feeling optimistic or hopeful versus endings that leave you blue is a factor.
2: You actually hit the nail on the head, Ken, because I have this theory often. Sometimes it's not how you start your movie. It really depends on how you finish it. And I heard this from a friend once. So I'm actually like needs to credit my friend Craig here. But he gave the greatest comparison. I'm gonna use Coda again because it's just the most recent example. Coda and Dune are great examples of this dune does what it does exquisitely for 80 percent of its runtime the first 80 percent, the beautiful incredible movie and then it teeters off a little bit at the end and then you're like okay we have another movie to get and then a few other movies to get through to get to what we need to feel as a resolution coda for the first maybe 90 minutes of its runtime is competent straightforward nothing over the top but those last 30 minutes man they go for the jugular you get all the emotion that's when you cry the way you end your movie can have such a profound effect and that is usually what can send you over the edge what Coda does for the last 30 minutes just that trade-off so i think that matters a lot
1: and I felt that with Bad Acts, which made the short list, it didn't make the five nominees. But I'm like, that film's going to get on the short list because yeah. you're crying at the end of that film. Yeah. You feel so much emotion, and you really are rooting for that filmmaker and that family. And I think yeah. that may have been a factor for that. For sure,
2: yeah, I think also that it was a s- small film. I, listen, I was very happy that it even made the short list. But yeah, like sometimes, again, back to my thing. Sometimes I know it's not there probably because they didn't see it. They didn't watch it.
1: All right, we are at your favorite to win the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature, and that film is? All That breathes." So the reason why it's in the number one
2: position right now, and I think this tends to happen a lot every award season, when it was maybe like September, October time, I don't think there's ever been a moment since I've launched my charts that I never had All That Breeds in the top five. When it came to the shortlist, I knew it was going to be on the shortlist. And when it came to nominations, when I did my final Oscar predictions for nominations, it was the only one that I was so confident that I was like, oh, it makes it. Everything else is flip a coin. Now, it's interesting to have it in the number one spot because it doesn't feel like a quintessential winner and it focuses on the darkening backdrop of Delhi's apocalyptic air escalating violence, two brothers devote their lives to protect one casualty of the turbulent times, the bird known as the Black Kite. So it has the animal factor, uh, the elephant whisperers, right? So I guess we're pairing these movies together, right? If you're a voter, you're also looking at climate change as a big factor. And again, pairing that with movies that are in the lineup, that and Fire of Love could be dividing that kind of contingency of just science docs, climate change movies, but all that breathes, there's something to be said about being easy to watch you. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, with at 91 minute runtime, my Jesus, I always say if you're 90 minutes, you get two and a half stars out of me no matter what, because thank you for just telling your story quick. And then on top of that, if you also tell your story exquisitely the way this film does, then it's even better. So I think the ease of it started its journey back at Sundance in 2022. Then it went to Cannes. It's really hit the circuit. HBO and Sideshow are both distributing it. So you get the prestige and power of HBO. And then Sideshow is the same studio that was behind Drive My Car last year which made its way to Best Picture Director and one international feature.
1: So for many reasons, that's why right now I think it's the one to beat. And by way of comparison, we've got Fire of Love at 94 minutes, so pretty close to your magical 90-minute mark. Navalny's a bit longer, 98, and then I think up from there.
2: I would say, especially in this time where we're in a perpetual problem, every movie is too damn long. At the moment, someone said, me recently yeah, at those hilarious they were like when did two hours become the new 90 minutes and i was like oh my god that's so true and it's horrible like the like guys it's okay and that doesn't mean you can't make long movies but like tom hanks at the end of saving private ryan to matt damon earn this <laughs> earn it it does it does shop so i think all that breeze a sneaky pick not that sneaky pretty obvious but i think it's the one to beat
1: so we've got all that breeze is your favorite to win but maybe a subtle distinction, do you think it will win? I think it will.
2: If I'm right now thinking about it, where's the buzz? Where does the race present itself? What could it win on its way there? I mean, BAFTA is going to be a big telling factor there because I think Navalny could really win BAFTA and that's going to make things really, really interesting. And then we have DGA, the Directors Guild, where I'm not expecting... Any of the nominees that are nominated at DJ to win, I think actually Matthew Heinemann going to win, which in theory won't matter in terms of telling us something, including us to the Oscars. So I honestly don't, I honestly just really don't know.
1: It's going to be very interesting though. For sure. And I don't think either you or I will be surprised if it's not all that breathes. Yeah. If it's all that breeze, I'm like, okay,
2: yeah, that makes sense. And then if it's not, they're like, okay, that makes sense too. <laughs> like, I, I really think this is down to all that breeze, all the beauty in the bloodshed, like on its face. I think that's what it is. But fire of love is that sneaky thing. And I honestly think the only reason Navalny and house made of splinters isn't higher in my head right now. And I think when I say four or five people are like, oh, they're done. No, they could totally win still. I just think they're eating from the same demographic and they're going to divide some votes. And I think, Interestingly, the bottom four are all interna- really internationally leaning movies. All That Breathes is the one, even though it's an international story, it's the only one that I feel like Americans and international, I think we're all on board. I think we can all jump on board for. And that's why I just I give it the side edge.
1: My question about All That Breathes and its chances relates back to something you said earlier about If it loses, not enough people watched it. It's a beautiful film. It is only 91 minutes, but it's also a bit on the experimental side. It's slow in parts, which is not a knock. I love slow films. And it's a slightly obscure topic. It's about these two brothers who have this makeshift bird hospital in their basement in Delhi. Do you think enough folks will actually watch it to put it over the top? You made a really good point. I would say
2: obscurity, creativity does wonders sometimes with Academy, right? When you experiment, you do something that's different. Goodnight Oppie was going to be something different, right? Like that was going to be experimental. If Goodnight Oppie made the five, I don't think we would even be having a conversation like as in depth about this. My like, guys, Goodnight Oppie's winning. We're just going to have a good time and let's just enjoy it. However, this is the thing I compare it to. And I'm sure this is like a really bad comparison, but there's something very Terrence Malicky about All That Breathes. It's like very, very Emmanuel Lubezki shot this Chivo and there's long scenes. And listen, I think, Ken, I think you and I broke from the same branch and we like love, I love a good wide shot of just show. Give me the world. Give me what is happening and let me just take it in and let it like, but those entertainment people that I was talking about, like Navalny and Top Gun, they're not on board with all that breathes. And also, listen... Call Space spades, non-English language films are always going to have the extra hump to get over. And it's subtitled. And sometimes it just presents itself as a, a potential obstacle.
1: Well, let's hope it's not because it's a lovely film and it it's would great. be a great winner if it is indeed victorious. I just want to add something real quick and just make a really big point about
2: this golden age that we're in. All That breathes didn't make my top 10 documentaries of the year. And I still think it's incredible. It just shows that this time that we're living in, documentarians are killing it. Like my personal, of my personal five that I put on my article in Variety, the top five, none of those were nominated for the Oscar. None of them made the list. Two of them didn't even make the short list. Robert Downey Jr. Sr., which I love so much. And three minutes of lengthening was, I think a godsend of cinema this year. And then we didn't even talk about, like, the automat, turn every page. Like, nothing compares the Sinead O'Connor documentary, I think, is great. There are just a lot of things that are hitting right now, and people are missing it, and I don't want them to miss it, because people are going to really pay attention when a documentary is in Best Picture, and many of these would have been super worthy.
1: And I should note that I think every one of those films you just mentioned, we did podcast interviews with the directors of all of those, so please check out our inventory of interviews. And we have interviewed and released interviews with all of the shortlisted documentary feature directors. And we will shortly have all of the five documentary short directors, interviews with them on the podcast. So before we let you go, four of these five documentary feature nominees premiered at Sundance. Are there any trends worth noting in this year's crop? I would say this year,
2: maybe more so than any other year, the films feel smaller with larger topics. I don't know really what that means. They're very uh, narrow topics that matter globally, but the films feel so tiny. There's just something just very, the makeup of them just seemed different than past years.
1: Yeah, these are all
2: very intimate stories. Yeah, super intimate, they're moving. Even when I don't think it hits completely, like All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, great example. Even though I wasn't crazy about it, everything that dealt with the opioid crisis was a gut punch to me. Like I was, it was flooring me and I cried. So, you know, every movie has its own niche and they can do something for anyone.
1: Before we let you go, there was a major announcement this week from the Television Academy that they are reversing course and going to allow documentary features that I believe were shortlisted but not nominated to be eligible for the Emmys. Can you take us through that, please?
2: Ah, TV Academy strikes again. So to give everyone just a very quick backdrop of this, what they moved to now they had a long time ago, and they got rid of it because the Emmys were feeling like they were the consolation prize to the Oscars. So if you couldn't get an Oscar, then they're like, okay, fine, I'll go get an Emmy then. They didn't like that feeling. They didn't like being, you know, left over second choice. So they got rid of the rule, and then now it's back. And essentially, it's just people want another bite at the apple. People want to win awards. So as long as you don't get nominated, you can go. And Now, I think what that ends up doing, it's going to get loud again. In that space. But I know there's like some rules that are going to be implemented because, you know, there are a lot of documentary categories. I mean, there's so many categories, period, at the Emmys. But for documentary, like there's documentary special, documentary series, and then exceptional merit. And the rules on theatrical releases, I think, are going to play a factor as well of like how wide did you screen? Were you released in theaters? I think there has to be some type of distinction of there just is a fundamental difference between something as big and loud as like Goodnight Oppie, that obviously is expensive. That got a wide release and something like we feed people like that was from Disney or something when you go smaller into things like Laurel Canyon that was nominated a few years ago for special or love gilda like that that was on cnn like there's got to be some type of distinction between them so i'm interested to see what the rules will end up being and how they're gonna split that up but again who knows i look at something in 2018 because icarus won the oscar and then got nominated for the emmy and got people very upset
1: On the plus side, the Academy does miss out on some great films, and it gives some worthy contenders a chance to win a really great award and Emmy. Absolutely,
2: because there's only one documentary category at the Oscars, and Emmys have, it feels like 40, but I think it's
1: four. But yeah, there is a difference. A film like Dick Johnson is Dead, which did win an Emmy and was overlooked at the Oscars, I'm sure glad that film had another chance love dick Johnson. i love kirsten johnson just in life i think we've done it again thank you so much clayton and you said a moment ago that documentaries are killing it i couldn't agree more and i would just say given the race this year all those folks who are working on the campaigns keep going because the race ain't over till it's over we gotta remember that thank you so much clayton take care really appreciate the time thank you ken